Happy Thanksgiving. All right. Well, not everybody enjoys Thanksgiving, right? Not everybody has a great time on Thanksgiving or at holidays. I was, I was having a little bit of a laugh with my, my dad who's visiting. Hi, Dad. Thanks for visiting. Yeah. But we were laughing about the fact that almost like in the last little while, every single time he's come, there's usually been a problem at our house, right? That something has gone wrong, whether it's like the power went out with, with an ice storm or our septic is causing issues or something along the way. Whenever he comes, there's an issue. And this time, it's just a, our dishwasher is a little wonky. Now, it's probably on, the, uh, on all the problems that we've had, this is probably the, the smallest of them all, right? But every single time he visits, something goes wrong, right? And nothing to do with his visit. It just happened to coincide, right? On all the holidays that he comes to visit, something is an issue. But for all of us, though, that can be, there can be a little issue in our hearts when it comes to times where we have to celebrate or be thankful or reflect or whatever. We go and we sit there and we go like, I got nothing to be thankful for. Nothing in my life is going well right now. Some things don't have to be going way, the way they want us to. And I, Today, maybe the, the question we want to answer is this. What if you don't like the end of the story that you have, right? The story that your life is, is in right now or a chapter of the story or a, a part of the story of your life, you don't like how it's ending. You don't like the destination that it seems like it's heading towards and you're, you're not content with it. When I say happy Thanksgiving and you think of that, you're, it's hard to muster up the words to say happy Thanksgiving back and actually mean it. Maybe today we can answer a question like that. As we read through Mark 2 to, to 11 last week, if you know we're, what we're doing as a church, if you're new to us uh, in our church, what we're doing the, over the next couple of years is reading through the whole Bible, uh, a couple of chapters every day, and then our messages on the weekends correlate to some chapters within this, the week's um, messages that we're talking about, the week's chapters that we're talking about. And we're just going to work our way all the way through the Bible. We're starting in Matthew, and now we're into Mark. And so our readings last week were from Mark 2 to 11, just so you know. And if you want to be a part of that, you can follow al along with us. Um, the pro program's called HeartStrong, and you can, you can go on our website and find out all about it. But we'd love for you to join us on that journey. And we saw it last week, as if you were reading with us, it end with the beginning of Passover weekend, right? Which was significant for Israel at the time uh, in giving thanks to God for rescuing them from slavery, all right? That was what the, the, the whole weekend really brought about was the, the idea of the Passover that was the final thing that allowed Pharaoh to, or forced Pharaoh to let Israel go free from Egypt. And so they, they celebrate that on what we would call now Palm Sunday, right? And as Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day, we see people in a wave of thankfulness, both of what historically that day would represent. They uh, see them in that sea of that thankfulness of their past salvation, they're also though longing for a new salvation because slavery in Egypt has now been replaced by occupation by Rome. And a common psalm that they would sing that would be sung at Passover took on new meaning as people regaled Jesus with palm branches in their clothes and they lined the streets welcoming him. 
a psalm that was used for thankfulness, as we see even in verse 1, and uh, one that spoke to the freedom uh, yet to come. It says in Psalm 118, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And then later, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That phrase was repeated with palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's in this setting, rightly or wrongly, where hope deferred by those people in that moment was kindled again for Israel. They didn't like the way the story was going. Freedom from Egypt has led to turmoil over turmoil over the years of having their own land and all the fighting that would go on and now has led to occupation by Rome and seemingly no end. They didn't like the way the story was going. And what they hoped would happen hasn't come about. And maybe, just maybe, in that moment, this Jesus of Nazareth who seems to be able to do miraculous things is the one that they should place their hope in. Even though at the same time, the prevailing thought of the rulers of Israel at that time was the opposite. They didn't see that Jesus was offering hope. They saw him only offering disruption, threatening their place of power over the people. There was no gratitude in their hearts for who Jesus was and what he was bringing, what he was offering. Just a jaded view, trying to protect what they had. Isn't that often how we live sometimes when maybe there's a glimmer of hope in something and yet hearts are somewhat jaded and want to hold on to what we do have. We don't want to risk losing the little we do have left instead of hoping for what maybe, what could be. And I think in this all, and as we'll see as we look at the chapter 12 today and start our new week, that Jesus, through Mark in his writing, is calling us to see in gratitude that even when our lives haven't been what we hoped they would be, that we have choices in front of us. We can either reject or receive Jesus as the foundation to build on. And as we pick up and reading in Mark 12, and if you have your Bibles with you, you're, we're just going to kind of walk through the whole chapter today. So you can pull them out, whether it's digitally or a paper version, and just kind of follow along with us. We'll be in Mark 12 for, for the majority of our message today. But as we pick up reading in Mark 12, the priests and the Levites and the scribes, they've been challenging Jesus' authority. And Jesus silenced them by outwitting them, all right? They had been talking to him about all sorts of things and challenging what he, what, whether he had the authority to do what he's doing. And, and he tells the, then he tells in the beginning of chapter 12 a parable about them, describing them as tenants of God who, wow, that God is coming to collect, they reject the messengers that he sent and finally his son. They had chosen to build in their own strength rather than God. And so out of the same psalm that, he, that was sung when he was entering Jerusalem, that same psalm that they would sing over Passover weekend, he prophetically says about them, this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, why would a builder reject a stone? Why is he saying that? Why is that so important in that moment? Because if it did not seem fit or useful for what they were going to build, 
they would reject it. And in ancient building practices, one needed to use a cornerstone that was square and true because it would help align the whole building. That very first stone that they would set would become the stone that everything else was measured off of. And if you didn't feel like it fit what you were wanting to build, you would reject it as your cornerstone. And we see that in ancient building and their practices today. How, how it works and how it stands the test of time, the test of time and we can still see their structures in, in uh, ancient parts of the world. It was vitally important for that cornerstone to be perfect as it would set the trajectory of the rest of the building. Jesus was rejected then and often today. Why? Because we don't think he fits what we are trying to build. We don't think the squareness and the rightness of what he is offering us fits what we want to build in our own strength. It would be one thing if we had blank slates now, if we, we had perfect materials to work with and everything that we picked up just fit perfectly. But because of our sin nature, because of the choices that we make and what happens to us, we really don't have that option to say, well, I can just build something perfectly on my own. What we build is messy. What we build isn't complete. There's gaps and there's holes in it. Holes have been punched in what we built. And there's also frustration. And so we, just like the people in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, we try to find what fits in the holes, in the wall, what fits in the places that are yet to be built properly. What can make something turn out right in the end from our stories that aren't what we thought they would be. And I know at my house, uh, I, I like tinkering with woodworking a little bit, and it is very much the tinkering side of it, uh, of what I like to do. And there's been times that when I go looking in my, in my garage searching for the right piece of wood to work in a project or to finish something, and it's most of the stuff in my garage is repurposed wood or the cutoffs from something else. And I'm, I'm rummaging through all the different pieces trying to find something that's going to work for what I want to do. And by the time I finished and look at the finished product, I'm looking at it and I'm never quite satisfied because I know that I've probably built off something that wasn't quite square. The piece of wood that I cut that I looked at with my eyes and, and thought, ah, this looks pretty good. It wasn't quite square. And it just throws everything off just a little bit. And the only way to work, make it work is to start all over again. But I don't want to. <laughs> but I want to. I don't want to start all over again. I want it just to work. I want to be able to just like muscle it into the right shape and hope it stays. But it won't. It just wants to go back to its natural fit, which is warped and broken. And I know in life that I've been tempted to do the same thing, not just in a woodworking way, but in a way with all the things in my life. When life seems out of sorts and challenges seem to pile up rather than get solved, in those places, the, the answer that, God's give, that God gives takes me too far out of my comfort zone. It takes me too far out of where I think I'm safe in, in following that answer, where it seems too risky where we have to give up too much to go in the direction that God is calling us. It's hard. It's hard to follow that out. 
let alone to be thankful and grateful in the middle of it and be like, happy Thanksgiving. What a great season. It's hard to do that sometimes. Now Mark includes that specific parable in his book for one reason, and it's this. When we don't like Jesus' conclusion, we're most susceptible to rejecting Jesus. When we don't like the answer that Jesus has for us as far as the problems or the issues that we're facing in life, when he says, this is what you need to build on, this is what you're going to have to structure everything else on in order to make this work, we're like, nah, that means I have to tear down everything and rebuild off of that. That means I have to, everything I've done so far is wasted. I have to waste so much of what I've already done in order to reset with you. And we don't want to. It's hard. And for the, for the Pharisees, for the rulers of the day, you can only imagine how infuriating that would, me, that would be when he looks at them and says that the cornerstone that was rejected has, you know, the stone that was rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he's looking right at them and they know that he's judging them and calling them out. How infuriating that would make them at that moment. So much so that we see in the next verses there that they wanted to arrest him. They're like, that's it. Let's put him in chains. Let's lock him up. Let's get rid of this troublemaker. Except they're afraid. They're afraid of what the crowds were thinking. They're afraid of what the crowds were, were hoping for because when they heard Jesus speak, they were like, there's another way. I, I can find a way out of what I feel out of the burden that's on my life right now, there's, a, there's hope for me to be able to lift this off. So they couldn't arrest him. What happened next almost seems comical if you were to, to look at it, yet it's truly sad and unfortunate. Uh, but it's something that we do as well. You see, the spiritually and financial corrupt leaders, what they started to do was send group after group towards Jesus while he was in the temple area to question him, to test him, to try to find a, a, a loose bit of his armor in, in his theology or his practice so that they could accuse him of that and hold him in contempt for it. They could, they could show that he is an inept teacher and leader and that they, nobody should be listening to him. They could discredit him. And something that they started with anyway is something that would grab our attention today just as much as it would them then. Taxes. Right? Am I right or am I right? How many taxes should I be paying the government? I can't believe they're taking so much money. They take it at the gas pump. They take it at the register. They take it in my taxes at home. They take it everywhere. They're taxing. There's taxes on my taxes. How can that be? All right? They go to him and say, how much tax are we supposed to pay? What are you supposed to do? How much are you supposed to give this government? And at that point, it's not even a legitimate government that's overseeing them. It's a country that has imposed their way on top of Israel. It's a seemingly innocuous question. Should we pay Caesar taxes? What are we supposed to do about this, Jesus? But it was a trap. A trap. It's a trap. It's a some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Should we rebel against Rome? Should we rebel against Rome? Do we have to pay these taxes to Caesar? Should we actually give him our hard-earned money? Does he deserve it? It's an illegitimate government over top of us. Why should we have to give him that? 
which would turn him into what? An insurrectionist. So if he answered on that side, all of a sudden they can go to Rome, they can go to the Roman rulers and say, hey, this guy's trying to overthrow Rome. He's trying to get us to stop paying taxes and everything like that. And hey, we want to pay taxes. We don't want to create trouble. So you better deal with him because he's trying to create a rebellion here amongst the people. That's one answer that he might give them. All right? And if he does say pay to Rome, then from a spiritual sense, they're like, are you asking us to compromise our faith? Our faith says that we are supposed to have no other gods. And if you look at this coin, it has a picture of a god on one side and Caesar on the other. And Caesar says he is the son of God. We can't be using this as his graven imagery to another god. And so they're trying to get him on that side, saying theologically, we're, we're unable to do this. So they're trying to trap him and use either side to poison his ability to speak into the hearts of men. So how does Mark record his response? He asked for a coin, one of the coins that they would have to pay their taxes. And it says this, and they brought one. And he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And in that, he was inviting them to see two powerful insights. Yes, give the things to Caesar that are Caesar's. It's his. This is his coin. It's got his stamp on it. If it's his, give it back to him. But yet more significantly, give the things that are to God's, that are God's, give them to God. That coin may have had Caesar's mark on it, but all of creation, and specifically humanity, has God's image on them. We reflect the image of God, and we're supposed to give back to God what is God's. So what must we give? Right? Matthew 6, 33 to 34. Does anybody know that? Some of you should know that. Right? That's been our memory verse in Heartstrong for the last month. Does anybody remember it? You can see it on the screen. Yeah, I know. It's easy. You can repeat it easy for me. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not what? Be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's so true, isn't it? Today is going to bring you enough trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow's trouble. In the battle between Jesus and these ungrateful rulers, these people, it's Jesus one, religious rulers zero. Right? They've tested them, come before them. And you can imagine, the, in the temple, there'd be wide open court spaces where people could come in and spend time. Right? It wasn't quite like the way our churches are built here. Right? There, it was like squares upon squares going down to the very holy of holies. Right? That, would, that would be where only the, the high priest would go. Right? And so anybody could go in the outer courts, no matter your background, your faith background, everybody can go in there. And then the farther in you could go, the more the more um, restricted it was. And so in that outer courts and, and the steps leading up to it, Jesus would be there and they'd come up to him one after the other and test him and then oh, walk away because he'd, he would have an answer for them. So the second group that comes up is a group of people known as the Sadducees. We talked about them in the song, remember? Because they're, they're always so sad. But they were like a religious priestly aristocracy, right? So they were like by family line, they were like, they were the elite of this group. And they asked Jesus a question about marriage, right? 
They didn't believe in life after death and, and everything going on like that. The Pharisees did, another group that they did. And for them, they were trying to either catch Jesus in something or to pin him on the other side as far as like seeing he's with those, those crazy people. And they're asking Jesus a question about resurrection using complicated Jewish marriage laws. And so what does Jesus do? And if you want to read what, the, what they there, they list a very complicated, like, series of remarriages by a lady to a whole bunch of gentlemen in the same family because their culture said if some of a male dies then the 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 widow she needs to be taken care of by any other family members and it just kept going down the line if as if they all died one after the other and she kept getting remarried to all the different ones complicated right you're like what kind of marriage law is that and i'm glad we don't have it in canada right you may like your brother-in-law, but not that much, right? <laughs> but what does Jesus do? But what does Jesus do when our cultural beliefs wish to change his word? Because that's what they were doing. Jesus says this. He rebukes them for not knowing the Bible or the power of God. Because he says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. And this is something we really can't gloss over when we look at what Jesus is saying to them. Jesus will not tolerate his word being used wrongly. He clearly states that when we get his word wrong, get the wrong cornerstone, we're basing everything on the wrong thing and our alignment is way off, we develop incorrect beliefs that no longer put our faith in God's power. We're trusting a different power. And we may look at it, uh, this isn't really my notes, but we may look at it and go like, man, I can see so many times in places in our culture today where preachers and teachers are using God's word inappropriately. They're mixing and messing it up. Please, like, God will do what God's going to do. Okay? We have to trust that God's going to bring his judgment and his correction in his time. All right? That's not our job to necessarily go out there as, as pulpit warriors and tear them all down. We have to trust God to be able to do that. But we have to know that God does not take that lightly. The second thing we see there is that Jesus uses his word then to refute their incorrect cultural interpretation of the Bible. Because he says, as for the dead being raised, because they're talking about in the afterlife, they're like, who's, the, who's they married to? Who's she married to? Her first husband, her second husband, her third husband, her fourth husband, her fifth husband? Which one is she married to when she's, uh, you know, all after, after her death? Is she married to all of them? That gets really complicated, Jesus. How is that supposed to work out? That's, that's the basis of what they're getting at. And he says, in the passage, he says, do you not remember or read the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So he's rebuking one, their theology about there's no afterlife, right? Because what he, we may not look at it that way when we read this, but the translation as they would have read it would mean that the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob would mean 
the, the present God of Abraham and the present God of Jacob and the present God of Isaac, meaning that he's, he's the God to them in that moment, meaning they're still alive somehow, right? But this is, you know, a long time after. This is thousands of years later. Yet he's still their present God. So they would hear that and go, oh, they're, they're still alive right now, thus refuting whether there is life after death. Jesus rebukes them and will use his word in context to shape our incorrect view of his word. But when we bypass the cornerstone, we bypass Jesus and shape scripture to our will, we will corrupt it and have no faith in its power, which again leaves us wanting a different outcome. So when it comes to Jesus and the religious leaders, it's now Jesus too and them nothing. They've come to him a couple times now and he keeps shutting them down. And this is all happening in like one after the other. A group comes up to him, asks him a bunch of questions, and then they leave when, they, they, when he answers their questions in a way that leaves them uh, rebuked or, and not getting their outcome. They leave and then another group comes. And so we get to a third one and we're, ho we're hoping that Jesus goes for like three for three and just keeps shutting them down and answers it. But now the third questioner comes and let's read what happens in this one. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing uh, that he answered them well. So again, he's kind of eavesdropping on Jesus talking to this last group and, and uh, the Sadducees and all the rules. And a scribe, again, if we were to remember what it is, it's like a religious lawyer, right? It helps you do all the things that you need to do in life according to the religious laws. And he would write up all your papers and he would also be the holder of all the scrolls and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, he comes up and he asks him, he says, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You should know that one if you're in Hearthstone, because why? That's this month's memory verse, right? So get on it. It's, um, it's uh, October 8th. You still have a little bit to go to memorize that. That one's a little bit easier. We, we, most of us have heard that one before. But the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, meaning God is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Anything else that we bring towards God is less than us loving God with all that we are and loving others. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now this answer that he gave and that the scribe heard, that would have struck a chord for what he gave there, that was actually prayer that everyone in Israel would recite. They would learn to recite that prayer, the Shema, which means listen and obey. They knew that because they were supposed to say that prayer morning and evening. 
when they get up in the morning and when they go to bed at night, they were supposed to pray the Shema. So that wouldn't be foreign to them. So to hear Jesus say, yeah, you're right, that is the most important thing. That would strike a chord. But Jesus is bringing a deeper context for the man. Because Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God is not only knowing the correct answer, it's in obedience to it. It's walking out all in love for God and loving others as we would care for, respect, and love ourselves. Which is the opposite of what most scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees would actually do. They had all this pretense about who they are, but their love for others and their real love for God was empty. It was all caught up in the rules. Jesus was bringing that deeper. He's actually rooting for them to bridge the gap. He's rooting for that scribe in that moment to bridge the gap between what he's known all his life about following these rules and the heart of that prayer. The kingdom is right there, right then, just in front of him. It's actually standing in front of him in the personhood of Jesus. He's asking that scribe in that moment to stop building without a cornerstone and accept that Jesus is there and that he can enter the kingdom. We finish the chapter with a warning from Jesus, an example, and an example of someone that's full of gratitude and full of thankfulness. The warning is this, the warning is to not be like those that have challenged him, those that have come up against him in this, in this, this afternoon, standing in front of the temple, to look out for those people in their life, in all aspects of their life. They will lead you to live not centered on Jesus. All the, the heart of what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they were trying to indoctrinate the people with, would lead them away from what it looks like to love Jesus, to love God and love others. They will preach or advertise security and freedom and affluence that your dreams will come true. But you are actually the commodity. You are what they're buying and selling and trading in enslaving you to a life focused on self, unsatisfied and ungrateful. But their reward will match the decay of their hearts. And we are, we are supposed to stay away from them. But notice, after describing all this, the, the affluence of the re religious elite, where Jesus sits in the temple, says in Mark 12, 41 to 44, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. It'd be kind of like our, our little center that we set up over there to be able to, to give tithes and offerings here. Imagine somebody sitting there watching you <laughs> and checking how thick the envelope was that you stuck in or trying to peek over your shoulder to see how many numbers you were punching into the machine. Right? For there, they didn't have any of this technology. It was not nearly as discreet as, as how, how we make it here. There, it was bags of coins. And so it was either a big bag of coins or a medium-sized bag of coins or a small bag of coins or just what you had in your hand that would be going in. So it would be very easy to see what people gave which is why the rich rulers would be making a big scene of the big bag of money that they would put in to show how religious and how, you know, much they want to give to God. 
But he does this. He stands there. He watches them putting money in. Many rich pull out large sum, put in large sums of money. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Which in our today, that would be about a day's worth of work at Tim, at Tim Hortons. That's about how much money she's putting in. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Her heart was so full of gratitude and thankfulness of where her life was truly found, that she could give all that she had. So what can we learn from these four encounters that we see that Jesus had in Mark 12? What can we learn? Number one, first thing, that Jesus isn't afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of your questions at all. If you have questions about why things are the way they are and how come life is the way it is and why are you having to go through what you're going through, if you have questions about what scripture says and how it's jarring sometimes to how we live our life and what we've built our lives on and how it seems like that cornerstone that we've built on needs to be removed so Jesus can be the cornerstone. If you've got questions about that, Jesus can handle them all. So bring your questions to Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't care. He can handle it. He doesn't think that your challenge to him is something that he can't overcome. But our second thing, number two, know this, that Jesus knows our motives better than we do. If we come with motives to say, Jesus, I'm justified in what I'm doing and how I'm living. I'm justified in not putting the cornerstone of you down in my life. I'm justified in building on something else and you just got to deal with it. That I'm going to keep this stone here and not change. And you got to try to make a mess out of what I'm building with a mess. He knows your motives. He'll know that you're not coming to him and say, help me understand what this looks like because I don't know what it looks like to put my full faith in you and trust that you're going to make this work. I don't know if I can fully give up everything and follow you in this. My finances are a wreck and I don't know if I can fully start all over making this work based off of biblical financing. I don't know if I can do this. Help me understand. He'll know when you mean it because you want change and when you are just trying to prove yourself, when you're just trying to justify the things that you already believe and want to do. Number three, know that Jesus will bring correction. He will bring correction, but always for reconciliation. Always for reconciliation. We can see even when he was dealing with the scribes and Pharisees, he's never there going, ha ha, got you. You suck, you lose, get out of here. He's always bringing correction so that they know the truth. They know the way. They know that Jesus is bringing life, not death. That his yoke is easy and his burden is not his light. He's bringing truth for reconciliation. And that if Jesus brings truth to your life today, it's because he wants to make you right with him again. He wants to set you on a right path, knowing that he is the right angles, the cornerstones that you can start building on where everything can be in alignment. 
It may not be easy and it may not be what you originally hoped for and planned on based off the world's ideas of success, but it's going to be what God has for you. And number four, Jesus always sees those who put their faith in him. He always sees those, whether it's the poor widow or the the searching scribe, he always sees those that are willing and looking to find that right cornerstone to build everything on, no matter their circumstances. He sees how close they are to the kingdom or how they've put their faith in him being their cornerstone. He sees you. He sees you in the hurting and broken circumstances that you're going through. When everything in life isn't turning up roses, he still sees you. And he says, if you make me your cornerstone, there is goodness that you can find in me that betrays the situations that you're facing. That you can still cry out to me, you are good, God. Despite the fact that life is not giving you a good time. So what if you don't like end of the season that you're in right now? What if you don't like the way your story is turning out? What if addiction is stealing your life away? It's stealing your family right from your grasp. What if that's happening? What if your finances aren't what you wanted them to be? What if your work wasn't as rewarding as you thought it would be and the promises of everything that you thought was going to happen isn't happening? What if the relationships that you thought you would have that would be great are turning out to betray you? They're turning it to be using you. They're turning it to be not what you wanted them to be. What if your body isn't lasting as long as they told you it would? It's breaking down before you're ready to break it, for it to break down. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, even when you get bad news or you don't get the ending you want, He alone is ultimately good. So good, in fact, that if the ending isn't good right now, that means that God's not done. If the ending isn't good right now, that means that God's not done. Whether it be on earth or in heaven, God isn't finished. Because God is good. And if we build on the cornerstone of Jesus, then the building is going to be true and right. You're going to build on a foundation that will not wash away. So if you're struggling to find joy, if you've come in Thanksgiving and you're struggling to find contentment, thankfulness, gratitude in the midst of your circumstances, come to Jesus. Seek him out and you will find your reward. You will find a peace that passes all understanding and a gratitude, a thankfulness, a joy that betrays your circumstances. Then your soul will sing, our Savior God to thee, how great thou art and how grateful put our trust in you today. God, anytime we build on anything other than you and your ways in your word, anytime we we stray away from that and we fall into the traps of the world and listen to them on how we're supposed to do things and what we think we can do in our own strength, God, whatever we're building is going to tumble, it's going to fall, it's going to break. It doesn't last. 
but we can find contentment and joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and building on you. Because you alone are good. You alone are our contentment, our joy. Because you bring that peace that passes all understanding. You can help us move from addiction to wholeness. You can help us move our finances from broken to healthy and whole. You can help us have healthy relationships with boundaries. You can help us restore things. And even in our bodies as they break down through life and as they offer us challenges that were unforeseen or are out of our control, God, we know that even in the end of all things, if you do not restore our bodies on earth, then we know that we are restored with you in heaven. gratitude in the midst of our circumstances. But beyond just choosing gratitude today, we also choose to build on the cornerstone that you are. We build on, on, on who you are. We don't reject you today, Jesus, but we embrace what it means to build on you. Help us. Lead us through your word with your spirit build what is true and holy and pure and good in you, Jesus.